Give me the green light. Give me just one night. I'm ready to go right now. I'm ready to go right now. I'm ready to go. Welcome, everyone, to episode 68 of the Greenlight Podcast. Uh, on this episode, we're excited to be joined by Ryan Peters uh, from NEC Sports and Pioneer Pride. Ryan, thank you for coming on, man. We really, really appreciate it. It's my, uh, my pleasure, Paul. Glad to be here. So um, before we get started, we got a lot to talk about in uh, Northeast Conference Hoops. But tell us about, I mean, I'm familiar with you because I, I coached in this league a long time ago. But uh, tell us about how you got your start in the Hoops media world and, uh, you know, where you're from and, and all that good stuff. It's kind of funny. I'm just, you know, I'm a Sacred Heart alum, 2001 graduate, um, got my degree in chemistry, and I've been, I've been working in chemistry my whole life since then. But I've also been a super fan of Sacred Heart, as you know, over the years. And uh, I just kind of, it's just for fun, I just started a blog with my friends, you know, um, probably like, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And then um, eventually hooked up with uh, John Templon at Big Apple Buckets and started, you know, blogging about the NEC. And then it kind of just led into like me getting, you know, an opportunity to freelance a little bit of ESPN, you know, write the conference preview there and then uh, joined Blue Ribbon for the last five, six years, which has been great. So I'm writing the NEC and some of the Mac previews there. And then, you know, Ron Ratner over at the NEC, um, you know, all the credit in the world to him, you know, he, he kind of brought me on as a freelancer to help the conference kind of promote their student athletes and promote the great basketball and the, the great kids and coaches that are in the league. And so I've been helping the NEC out for the last two and a half years, kind of just blogging, doing media stuff for them, uh, doing, you know, features and whatnot. So it's, it's kind of funny. It's, it's, it's a cool little side hustle to have. And I'm, I'm, I love the NEC. I love Sacred Heart. So I'm, I'm just happy to kind of promote it any way I can. Yeah, I mean, I was, we were going to ask uh, what made you choose the NEC, but you kind of answered that, being a Sacred Heart alum and, yep. uh, and loving. I mean, you, you went through the Dave Bike era, um, and I didn't realize I was I, – I did a bunch of homework and read a bunch of your articles. I didn't realize during his tenure – I think he was there for 14 or 15 years. He only had three winning seasons. I did not realize that. Yeah, it was kind of up and down. So Bike was a legend in the D2 ranks you because know, they won a national championship in 86, but that was far beyond my time. Um, and then I, when I, when I, um, enrolled in Sacred Heart in 97, 98, um, they were actually starting their D one transition process. Yeah. And so there were some rough years, um, from basically 98, to I think 2004 or five, where they were just getting, you know, destroyed, uh, at the division one level and also at the NEC level, they weren't very successful at all but then 2005-6 it started to turn around they had an all, all uh, an all first teamer and Kim Bay uh, Kimboy Trim a uh, really good post presence who's who's played overseas for many many years now um, and then that that 2006-7 season um, they got to the NEC finals they lost to Howie you know um, um, in in the NEC tournament finals and then again they lost in the NEC tournament finals in in 07 08 to Mount St Mary's this time they were at home um, yeah. I was actually at that game it's probably I, think the, I was at that game with my dad I remember that <laughs> that was probably the most painful loss for me as a oh. sports fan ever just you know and, and I've, I've had a lot of hardship you know being a Whalers fan growing up and a oh, Mets man. fan yep. and uh, 
And so, yeah, that, that, that championship game in 08 was really rough because Sigar had a real chance to get to the tournament then. And then 08, 09, they were also very good, lost in the semis of the tournament. But like you said, they had that three-year window under bike where they were really good and they had that chance. But then it kind of just fell off from there until bike ended up, uh, you know, retiring and handing it over to Anthony Latina. Yep. Yep. For sure. You can take the next one, E. No, awesome. And, and I know, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking through right now because you're bringing up memories and obviously I didn't grow up in the Northeast, but, um, and so I, I, I'm looking back and you hear, usually it's that 15, 16, that play and matchup. But now that I've kind of immersed myself into it, you see these like runs, you see these turns of LIU's run from 2011 to 2013, you see these. And now um, Bryant, who historically, at least in recent memory, has not been very good. Um, Jared Grasso has them playing incredibly well at the top of the conference. What have been your thoughts about kind of how um, how they've jumped out to to a lead within the NEC? I mean, Jared Grasso's done an incredible job of recruiting talents. Um, and Bryant, you know, to, their, to Tim O'Shea's credit, you know, Bryant went into the D1 transition process, and I think they, they became a full-time member in 2012-13. And Tim O'Shea had a pretty good team for those two, three years when he had, you know, Deame Starks and Corey Maynard and Alex Francis um, and those guys, Frankie Dobbs. Um, so they were pretty good, but then they fell off a little bit. Part of the problem with Bryant was they lost, and this is a problem all, throughout the NEC, is they lost, you know, guys to up-transferring. Yeah. Um, you know, Nizre Zuzwa was and Marcel Petway were two guys that, that left Bryant that kind of like left that, that program in a tough state. And then Jared kind of inherited a three win team. And, you know, to Jared's credit, he's just, he's done an incredible job bringing in guys like Peter Kiss, you know, the Quinnipiac, he was an all rookie guy in the Mac. And then he played a little bit at Rutgers. And now he's, he's a fantastic like playmaker. He could do a number of things on the floor really well. Uh, Michael Green was like hardly recruited out of New York City, but he's he's become one of the best point guards in the league, one of the best point guards in mid-major, you know, in the mid-major uh, realm, if you, if you ask me, because, you know, he scored 33 points against UMass in an upset win back in December. Um, so he's been really good. And then other guys like Chris Childs, who's a great three-point shooter. He played under Jim Calhoun in Division Three as a freshman, and then he mm -hmm. lit it up in the uh, community college uh, ranks as, as a sophomore, just – He's making like, I think, close to 50% of his threes right now. And so like Grasso's brought on this talent that's just, you know, everyone's really versatile. That He has six or seven guys that just can really play and they, they push the pace and they make it really uncomfortable for their opponents. And uh, it's one reason why Brian right now, I think, is a front runner in the NEC. Hey, hoop heads, we all hate ankle sprains and they happen way too often. Ankle injuries are the number one sports-related injury. Arise is trying to change that. With the iFast, your athletes get preventative protection and full mobility. Athletes no longer need to wear bulky braces that limit performance and give mediocre protection. Anyone playing sports should be using these products. Keep your athletes in the game. Don't wait for them to get hurt to take action. Visit www.arise.com. Spelled A-R-Y-S. E, and use the code HOOPHEADS to get 20% off the future of performance. That's A-R-Y-S-E dot com with promo code HOOPHEADS to get 20% off. Awesome. And, and I know, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking through right now because you're bringing up memories and obviously I didn't grow up in the Northeast, but, um, and so I, I, I'm looking back and you hear, usually it's that 15, 16, that play and matchup, but now that I've kind of immersed myself into it, you see these like runs, you see these turns of 
LIU's run from 2011 to 2013. You see these. And now um, Bryant, who historically, at least in recent memory, has not been very good. Um, Jared Grasso has them playing incredibly well at the top of the conference. What have been your thoughts about kind of how, um, how they've jumped out to, to a lead within the NEC? I mean, Jared Grasso has done an incredible job of recruiting talent. Um, and Bryant, you know, to, their, to Tim O'Shea's credit, you know, Bryant went into the D1 transition process, and I think they, they became a full-time member in 2012-13. And Tim O'Shea had a pretty good team for those two, three years when he had, you know, Deame Starks and Corey Maynard and Alex Francis um, and those guys, Frankie Dobbs. Um, so they were pretty good, but then they fell off a little bit. Part of the problem with Bryant was they lost, and this is a problem throughout the NEC, is they lost, you know, guys to up-transferring. Yeah. Um, you know, Nizre Zuzwa was and Marcel Petway were two guys that, that left Bryant that kind of like left that, that program in a tough state. And then Jared kind of inherited a three win team. And, you know, to Jared's credit, he's just, he's done an incredible job bringing in guys like Peter Kiss, you know, the Quinnipiac, he was an all rookie guy in the Mac. And then he played a little bit at Rutgers. And now he's, he's a fantastic like playmaker. He could do a number of things on the floor really well. Uh, Michael Green was like hardly recruited out of New York City, but he's he's become one of the best point guards in the league, one of the best point guards in mid-major, you know, in the mid-major uh, realm, if you, if you ask me, because, you know, he scored 33 points against UMass in an upset win back in December. Um, so he's been really good. And then other guys like Chris Childs, who's a great three-point shooter. He played another Jim Calhoun in Division Three as a freshman, and then he mm-hmm. lit it up in the uh, community college uh, ranks as, as a sophomore, just – He's making like, I think, close to 50% of his threes right now. And so like Grasso's brought on this talent that's just, you know, everyone's really versatile. That He has six or seven guys that just can really play and they, they push the pace and they make it really uncomfortable for their opponents. And uh, it's one reason why Bryant right now, I think, is a front runner in the NEC. Um, you know, we have, a, we have a connection to O'Shea. So we're both Ohio University graduates. I actually oh, okay. yeah. O'Shea. Uh, I love Tech. He's a great guy. Yeah. So he, he left after my freshman year, and then John Gross came in, and obviously he went to Bryant. And then I went to Providence as a graduate assistant, and I was there um, under Cooley's first two years. And I'll never forget it. December 23rd, 2011, we're playing Bryant at home, and we are losing at halftime. And it was uh, – one of the greatest halftime speeches I've ever heard from a coach and by greatest, uh, you know, you can take what that, what, what was said in that, in that locker room. We eventually ended up winning the game because otherwise, Oh man, I don't know what that post game speech would have been, but um, yeah, I just, I just, I'll never forget that because they were kind of making that transition. And obviously if you, you know, if you're familiar with Northeast hoops, you don't even need to be familiar. Like Providence has no business losing to Brian at home at halftime. So it was uh it was crazy, but I'll never forget that. So um, I want to talk about the parity in, in the Northeast Conference and kind of get your thoughts on this. We haven't had a repeat conference winner um, actually since I was coaching at it, since Jason Brickman, who used to give uh, everybody in the league fits. I think he's still top five in all-time assists in the NCAA. Awesome. But, um, you know, why, why do you think we haven't had a, a repeat winner in almost seven, eight years now? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, it's funny because you look, there's literally only been four teams that have won the NEC in the last decade or so. It's been LIU, it's been FDU, you know, Greg Horrendas won a couple years. Um, it's been Mount St. Mary's, you know, Jamie and Christian had some success, you know, when he was there and now he's at GW, obviously doing well. Um, and then um, who's the other team? Robert Morris in 15? Robert Morris, yeah, Robert Morris oh, no, yeah. with Andy Toole. Um, I forgot about him already since they're in the horizon <laughs> now, but um, 
Yeah, so it's it's been four teams. So it's kind of I think it's a little fluky that none of those four teams have have had a repeat. Um, you know, have been able to win back to back. But now it's just interesting because we have a lot of teams that I think you know Bryant has a real chance here to kind of break that that mold um, and become that fifth team who's won the NEC in the past. I don't I don't know how many years it's been like twelve to fifteen years, but um, I think it's more fluky than anything. And but it also speaks to the fact that, like I said before, it's very tough for the NEC to retain talent at times. So when you have guys, you know, who taste the success of getting to the NCAA tournament as a 16 seed, as a, a team that's going to play in Dayton, now they now they have interest from higher, you know, from higher programs. And then for the for the coaches, they have to re-recruit their own guys in the, in the off season. You know, you, you can imagine how brutal that is. You know, Paul as a coach, you know as a former coach, like just having to re-recruit guys, not, not just recruit freshmen and, you know, and, and newcomers and, but you got to re-recruit your stars to kind of convince them that staying at, you know, LIU or, or, you know, Robert Morris or whoever, you know, is, that's the way to go. And I know Andy Toole had a lot of problems with that because they had a great team, a championship team in 2015, but then he had Marquise Reed go to Clemson. He yep. had eventually um, Rodney Pryor went to Georgetown. So he, Elijah Mini went to, I think it was Eastern Michigan. So they had a lot of talent leave that program. If those guys stayed, then yeah, they probably win the next year and they probably win the year after that. But it's just like guys taste that success and they want to play at the higher level. And that's, that's the challenge that, you know, and FDU's had that too with Marquise Towns leaving for Loyola and then Earl Potts leaving the program. So, you know, cause Greg, I think won his first pro championship in, in 2016 and then he had a little bit of a lull there because he was dealing with, you know, transfer issues. So it's just, you know, I think it's part of the beast in the NEC to, to kind of build that program where you have a dynasty like LIU did. And all the credit back then to, to Jim Ferry and Jack Perry to keep Jamal Osawer around and to keep Julian Boyd around. Because I know those guys had interest from schools like Marquette and, and Maryland, but they, they stuck around. And they wanted to build the dynasty. But now it's getting tougher and tougher to do that. Yeah. And a friend of the pod, Dante Jackson, who's at Xavier now, was in the, he was at Robert Morris for a year with Andy Toole. Now at Xavier is in almost the exact opposite situation where they're taking grad transfer after grad transfer. They're recruiting guys away. I remember speaking with him and he said, we have freshman of the year after freshman of the year. And it's just we're recruiting better than anybody. But if the turnover is there, how do you build any continuity? How can you do that? And so it's definitely, definitely a, uh, it's got to be struggling. But Looking just individually this year, I'm curious, and, and right now the top of the league, obviously we talk about Bryant, LIU's at six and three as well, and a lot of conferences, including the NEC, have gone to this back-to-back -back model where you're playing the same team back-to-back -back in two days. I think right now looking at the schedule, LIU and Bryant are scheduled to play each other February 25th and February 26th. How do you see this kind of new scheduling model potentially shaking up how this could shake out where it's you got to win back-to-back, -back or even if the team just splits, they win the conference? Yeah, it's interesting. So, like, if you look at Bryant, for example, um, Bryant has two split. They, they have two sweeps so far in their back-to-backs. They swept Central Connecticut and they swept Wagner. And that's the difference from them being, you know, four and five versus being six and three. So you really have to kind of – it's tough to win two games in a row. And we've seen – I think – I haven't. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think a majority of the teams have split these back-to-backs in the NEC so far. And it's probably nothing more than a coincidence. But it's, it's tough. You know, it's tough to play the same team two days – um, with, you know, two days at a time. And then, you know, it gets chippy in that second game and whatnot. So I think if you look at the, if you look at the talent on each team, I think Bryant and LIU have the most talent in the league. So it really is just a question of them playing, being consistent and just kind of 
being consistent on a game out and game uh, game in and game out basis because I think if those two teams play up to their potential, they're they're clearly the two favorites in the league right now. And the standings obviously show that at six and three, but um, you have to, at the very least, you have to split these games because, as you mentioned, Ian, it's like you know, in these back-to-backs, if you lose two games like that, the shift in the standings can be rapid. Like you could go literally go from like second place to seventh place in the league. So you really just have to kind of maintain, and then when you have the opportunities to pull off the sweeps, you do that. And it's and it's interesting too with this because um, last year, the, as a conference, the NEC was the playing at the nineteenth fastest tempo. Uh, bottom bottom end, they're currently the second quickest tempo of, and you've written about this, about of any team in the country. And I look at even just Bryant, they have the fourth, according to Kim Palm, fourth quickest adjusted tempo. Their average possession length is sixth offensively, 17th defensively. And especially when you're playing back-to-backs and you're not having that time to recover and rest, it's really impressive. What, what have you seen? And obviously your eyes are on these games nonstop. Are there certain things that are just contributing to this trend? Are teams just wanting to play up and down? Or what, what has been the cause of um, why we're seeing such an increase in pace uh, across the conference? I mean, the pace, I think, is is attributable to three teams, Bryant, LIU, and, and St. Francis, Brooklyn. I mean, those are three teams that just they, – they, they literally want to run up and down the floor. That's what they want to do. They have, the, they have the skilled guys to do that. When you look at LIU, they have Ty Flowers, who's a, a really skilled 6'9 stretch forward um, who can run up and down the floor. Eral Penn is a five, but he's not your prototypical five who likes to kind of lumber around the rim and, and in the lane. He'll run up and down the floor. He's got a ton of steals this year. And see, and you look at Bryant, we mentioned before, they have the shooting, they have the playmaking at all five positions. You know, Hall, Hall Elijah is, is a really good, you know, shot, shot blocking machine. Uh, but he also can run the floor. He's had a, he's had a couple highlight alley-oops uh, so far this year. So I think they have a lot of skill and athleticism one through five for these teams, these three teams that I mentioned and other teams like Sacred Heart, the same thing, you know, they want to get up and down the floor FDU you know, with Jaleel Jenkins at the point. He's, he's like a lightning bug out there. I mean, he's so shifty. He wants to go out and transition too. If you look at the game winning three that Jaleel hit uh, against Bryant last night, it was kind of a transition bucket. He just got up the floor really quickly, found an open spot at the top of the key and, and drained that three-pointer. So um, I think it's just, you know, I think the personnel kind of fits the pace this year. Obviously, Jared Grass is a big part of that because they're, I think they're second or third in the country right now in tempo. Yeah. And it's, they want to make teams uncomfortable. And, you know, credit to Jared and credit to Derek Kellogg at LIU and, you know, Glenn Brake at St. Francis – they want their guys to be in the best shape possible. So they make it really uncomfortable for their, for their opponents, especially in this kind of back-to-back environment. And um, I think it's, I think it's a select, it's a select number of teams that want to push the pace. And that's kind of increasing the tempo as, as a whole. When, when you look at the conference compared to the rest of the uh, country. Yeah. The only one that I, stands out to me that really isn't is once again, friend of the pod, Dan Ingles at Mount St. Mary's playing at the 356th adjusted tempo, which is, you just look at those polar opposites within a conference. It's pretty, pretty, pretty stark and, and pretty incredible to see. Obviously, one's, yeah. one's four and four, one's six and three. But like you said, that, that could change. Yeah, with Mount, it's interesting. So Mount, Dan's got a bunch of bigs. He's got, you know, Malik Jefferson. He's got Nano Poku playing the four and five. And then he's got George Washington uh, transfer Mezzi Offerum playing the three. He's, just, he's like a six, eight freak athlete. Not a great shooter but um, really good athlete. So what, what, what Dan has kind of made them do at the mount is he's forced opponents to shoot over that size. When you have that kind of size, 6'8 at the 3, 6'9 at the 4, 6'9 at the 5, good luck shooting over that size. Kind of 
turn into a half court game, you know, and, and limit the teams, uh, you know, transition opportunities. And, you know, they've obviously done that. They've also had some injuries too. So they've had some depth issues at, at the Mount. So obviously I think Engelstag is cognizant of the fact that he doesn't want his guys to lose their legs, especially late in the game. So I think it kind of fits to their personnel that they should play a slower tempo. Yeah. Um, obviously COVID has affected every, every conference across the country. It's kind of a two-part question. First, who has gotten hit hardest uh, in the NEC in terms of COVID and postponements and cancellations? And then two, if you were promoted to the uh, commissioner of the NEC tomorrow, what would you do with conference tournaments? Because we have talked at length uh, on previous episodes about should we move the conference tournament? Should we cancel the conference tournament? What happens if um, two teams are in the semis and one gets COVID? Are they just out and the other team moves on? Like, how are we going to manage this here in the, in the next – I mean, it's coming up, two, three weeks, conference tournament play starts. So kind of a two-part question. Yeah, so the teams have been affected. Merrimack got hit early. Um, I know they had, they had plans to play in December, but that didn't come to fruition. They literally went through like a 40-day stretch from mid-November to the end of December where they practiced like 10, 10 to 12 times. Um, so then you do that and then you ask them to kind of go right into league play. Um, it's no surprise that they start off one and three on the year. Now they've actually, you know, gotten back to four and four. So they've kind of, you know, equilibrated their season, so to speak. Um, but you know, Merrimack's been hit pretty hard. Wagner, I, f- I feel really bad for Bashir Mason right now. Um, they were supposed to play, they were supposed to score off with Merrimack at home yesterday, but then for whatever reason, that game got postponed and today's game with Merrimack got postponed as well. So they haven't played in quite a long time and they just have a ton of talent right now, you know, with Alex Morales and, and, you know, Elijah Ford and, and, you know, Will Martinez is doing good things there. So um, hopefully they could get, you know, they could get healthy. They could beat the, the COVID protocols and play some games, but those two teams come to mind as far as like, um, you know, who's been hit the, the most as far as the conference tournaments, there's no perfect answer. Right. Um, you know, my preference is I, I would like to see the conference tournaments, I think it's great publicity for these low mid majors like the NEC. You know, you want your teams to compete for an NCAA tournament berth on national TV in the finals. Now, of course, obviously COVID brings those special risks where, like you mentioned, Paul, you know, what happens if a team gets COVID? Do you just cancel the game? I think, I think in this kind of situation, you kind of have to. And, but I, I, I know the NEC, what they're, what they're trying to do is, you know, there's some, there's some talk about, you know, should they have a four-game, you know, tournament? Should they have an eight-game tournament or an eight-team tournament or a four-team tournament? I think what they're trying to do is they have the regular season end in, in late February, and then there's about a week, a week-and-a-half gap between the, the last regular season game and then the first NEC tournament game. So I think they're trying to make, make sure that their teams – they tell their teams that are qualified for that tournament to kind of stay in their own bubble – be as safe as possible as they possibly can to kind of, I guess, reduce the risk of having some kind of cancellation. Um, but for me, I, I don't want to personally, I don't want to see a cancellation of conference tournaments. I just think it's a great, it's a great form for the league to kind of showcase to be on ESPN. I mean, the league wants Bryant versus LIU um, in the conference tur- in, in the tournament finals. And it doesn't have to be those two teams, but they want to showcase Yep. They're, 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 they're most talented teams to fight for that NCAA tournament because they, they want the most eyeballs on their product. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, let's switch gears a bit and talk about coaches in this league. Uh, do you expect to see any coaching changes, whether a coach leaves? I know a lot of, a lot of talk about uh, Grasso to Fordham or whether a, co- a coach is asked to leave, um, you know, after a couple of years of not necessarily uh, getting as many wins as they thought. Do you think any, any changes in the offseason? 
I mean, it's in, it's almost impossible to predict. I mean, Grasso to Fordham, I just don't see that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, Jared's a really smart guy. He's, you know, he, he was, he was Tim Clues's associate head coach for a long time. He knows that if he keeps winning at Bryant, that a better job is going to come along than Fordham. And, you know, Andy Tool turned down Fordham, you know, you know, yeah. five, six years ago, because he was smart enough to see that, you know, that was probably not a great job because you think about it from their, from their viewpoint, you know, Jared's like what, you know, probably close to 40 years old. You take that Fordham job and let's say you fail four or five years from now, now you're in your mid forties. And what are you doing? You're scrambling to get like, you know, an assistant coaching job somewhere. I mean, so that's probably not the position he wants to be in. Um, it could happen though, but you know, so if, if Jared wins this year, if they win, the, if they win the NEC and they go to the conference tournament, there's a chance that a, a, a school is going to try to pick them off. And, you know, that's, that's the nature of the beast. But um, I know he's already gotten commitments from Peter Kiss is coming back for next year. Um, I think Hall Elijah is coming back for next year. So I think they're, they're trying to build something in Bryant and Jared's obviously cognizant of that. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's tough to predict who's going to actually lead the league. I mean, but there, there's so many great coaches in this league. I I think, you know, uh, one through 10, you know, it's just such a a talented group of guys, guys that really understand the league really well. They know how to recruit talent into the league. You know, obviously it's a Testament, you know, they lose all this talent to up transfer, but you know, these are the coaches that are picking that talent, you know, whether it's Kane Broom or Quincy McKnight, or we mentioned Marquise Reed or, you know, guys like that, you know, Josh Nebo. I mean, they're all, you know, these guys are getting plucked because they were under recruited gems and, you know, the NEC guys found them. So um, I don't, it's tough. There hasn't been a ton of coaches movement in the past couple of years. And I don't really expect to see much movement. I mean, maybe one or two coaches leave, but, uh, typically, it's a pretty stable group at the moment. Yeah, and it's because I feel like for a while, obviously, when Robert Morris was in the uh, in the conference, Andy Tool's name was always popping up left and right. Yep. And he turned down jobs, and and like we said before, it kind of he he went through all these cycles where he's losing players, having to retool, restock for no pun intended retooling. But they 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 literally have lost those guys, and, and the name continues to come up. I'm curious though, and kind of circling back to what we mentioned before it's been a breeding ground for these high major transfers and these coaches have to keep them or have to find a way to bring in new talent. Is there any way to, that you can see to curb that or is just, that's kind of just the nature of the beast when you're at a lower major conference and, and you're going to have this talent that wants to play at a higher level. Um, or is there a way that, that these guys can, can keep the talent in house longer? It's incredibly hard, right? Um, I, I think part of it is the nature of the beast. But, you know, one example, I want, you know, Rob Crimmel at St. Francis University has done a really good job of kind of keeping his talent there. And, of course, he lost Josh Nebo to Texas A&M. But Josh was also a Texas kid. So, you know, more power to him to, to, to up-transfer there and obviously get a free year of education out of it. Um, but he's done a really good job. He kept, you know, Isaiah Blackman. He kept Keith Braxton around. Those are two, you know, former player of the years, player of the year guys in the NEC. And he kind of, they, they, the, the, the campus is in a small community in central PA called Loretto. And uh, you know, they, they've kind of built like a family atmosphere. And I think that's helped um, keep kids like Jamal King and Braxton and Blackman around. Um, but of course it's, it's just tough because everything's kind of, you know, fluid and there everyone has their own unique situation. So, um, you know, I think of Sacred Heart, you know, Anthony Latina's lost, you know, Kane Broom, he's lost Quincy McKnight. Um, he's lost a lot of, you know, he lost EJ Anasicki to Tennessee um, as a grad transfer. So it's just tough. You know, it, it, I don't know if there's really a magic um, formula for this because, you know, EJ Anasicki, I think about, 
he was like the perfect kid that you would want, you know, he's such a loyal, humble kid. Um, he's, he's, he's got an incredible work ethic. He's very well grounded. And his goal was to like, he was going to stay at Sacred Heart and, and you get his degree. He was not going to up transfer after being a, you know, after being a sophomore, despite having a, a great year, but um, he ends up, he ends up graduating, you know, in three years at Sacred Heart. That kind of tells you the kid and his work ethic. But, you know, then after he graduates, he kind of fulfilled the service of Sacred Heart and he wanted to kind of try himself out at a higher major. So I don't know if there's really anything Anthony Latina could have done in that situation. I mean, you have a great kid and he just wants to play at a, at a higher level. And he, he had a lot of success in the NEC for three years. So I don't, you know, I don't know if there's really that, that, that kind of magic formula where, where you could, you could keep these kids around. It's kind of just a, you kind of have to adapt to the times. Right. And, the, the, the NEC has done, I think, a pretty good job. You know, St. Francis, Brooklyn in particular, guys like Travis Atts and Unique McLean um, have come from, you know, higher programs. And they, they, they didn't succeed at, you know, UMass or Tulsa or Quinnipiac. And they brought them on to, into Brooklyn, and now they're, they're playing really well. So the, you see the NEC coaches also adapting, kind of getting their own transfers in and kind of getting, you know, finding junior college guys and that. So I think the recruiting kind of changes a little bit to, to account for the, the up transfer loss. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and on top of that, I mean, with the shifting going on with the players, um, obviously I think there's also obviously the shifting with teams. Robert Morris, we, we talked about, I mean, they're not part of the conference anymore. Um, and they, they've left. Is that a significant loss for the league or is it better in the long term? I know they've had recent success. They've been a strong program. Um, and then is there a next school that you see? Is the conference still looking to – to grow? Is there a school that you see, whether it's coming from um, the, the MAC coming down, whether it's another Division three school like Merrimack then coming up, where do you see, one, how Robert Morris leaving, how does that affect the conference? And then two, um, the future of any other potential teams coming up? I think Robert Morris leaving, it's certainly a short-term loss, right? Because obviously you have a team that's really good. They get to the NCAA tournament, then they leave the next year. Uh, that's that's a minor hit to the conference, but you kind of look at it. The team that essentially replaces Robert Morris is Merrimack, and what they do, they win the they won the regular season last year, so um, they get the replacement there. I think the NEC is always openly recruiting teams. They're always looking, keeping their options open as far as to to, to expand. Um, to expand, you know, the, the, the conference size. The key with the NEC is they're also a football conference. So they really want schools that have football programs in there as well, because they want to be able to be qualified for division one, one a in terms of, in terms of football. So Robert Morris leaving as a football program does hurt them a little bit. Um, so I think, you know, I think they're always kind of hyper-focused on, um, on, on, you know, trying to fill that gap. And, as far as like, you know, finding where the replacements come from, I think typically it is kind of the division two level for, for, for the NEC. You look at, you know, Bryant recently was division two. Mm -hmm. Merrimack was division two. They had a lot of success up there. So I think they're, you know, Sacred Heart back in the day was. So I think, you know, they're always kind of, they're always trying to look at the lower division, division levels to kind of replenish their stock. Um, but I think right now the 10 teams, they're happy with who they have in the, in the league. Uh, it's a really good kind of unique set of schools. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm sure they're always up, open to expanding, but, um, you know, that, that remains to be seen if that's going to happen in the next year or two. Um, Ryan, this was great. We really appreciate it. We're going to get you out of here on this. Uh, back in 2019, 
Goodman did this whole big article on all the conferences and ranking, you know, one through 10, the best jobs, best schools, best opportunities, all that. So Robert Morris is still in here. So we can probably just take them out and now kind of re-rank, but wanted to get your thoughts. Um, and I, I, I'm anxious to see where you put Sacred Heart and, and how much uh, uh, of your Homer will come out. But um, what, uh, where do you rank the best jobs, right? I mean, if you were, if, if you could take any job or however you want to rank it, what do you think one through 10 are, are the best gigs in, in the NEC? Yeah, so this is interesting. Um, I'm looking at the list right now. So um, I do agree. I, I like, I think Mount St. Mary's is a really good position because they have, they, they kind of have that history and tradition. I think I'd probably put them a little higher in fourth than, you know, where, where Goodman put them. But um, they do have a they do have a really good fan base. They do have some media exposure. There are a couple of local papers that pay attention to them, and they're also close to ball close enough to Baltimore where the Baltimore Sun and others are going to pay attention to them. Uh, the game atmosphere in that arena at the Mount is terrific too. So I think you know they're I think they're in a Mount's definitely one of the better te- programs. You know Bryant right here is ranked ninth, but obviously I think Jared Grasso if you win then the program is going to get elevated over time. And I think we're seeing that now. Brian's definitely much higher ninth, eighth or ninth in this league right now based on job. Just, just because as you win, you're going to grow your fan base. You're going to improve the school's resources. And I think we're seeing that right now. And Central Connecticut's also interesting. So they're very low on this list. But um, as you know, Paul, under Howie Dickman, they were, they were one of the most desired jobs in the, in the NEC way back when um, because they also had a great fan base. And obviously they've had, unfortunately, a lot of losing over the past several years, and that's kind of whittled down the fan base. So the atmosphere at Dietrich is not as great as it used to be. Um, But I think that's a job. And also, too, you know, the resources have been kind of whittled down for Central Connecticut. So I think that's a job that's kind of a sleeping giant in a sense. They have the ability to, you know, if you improve the resources, if you start winning again, that fan base is certainly there to kind of generate that interest. And um, you know, they, they, they have the media exposure with the Hartford Current and other local papers around in the area to kind of generate, kind of drum up, you know, that excitement. Um, and then just kind of let me look at this list one more time. Uh, to, me, to me, the one that was super surprising was St. Francis U because, yeah. I mean, I know you mentioned they're creating a family atmosphere, but I think that is one of, if not the hardest place to recruit to in the country. I mean, Loretto has yeah. like one hotel two restaurants i mean it is a tough it's a tough place to even get to let alone convince kids to spend four years i you know um i still have never been to loretto believe it or not so um, i uh you don't need to go (laughs) i do want to go because i i i wrote a feature last year in the nec tournament uh program on rob crimmel and uh it was funny because I had never been to Loretto, but I, I made sure I spoke to as many Red Flash fans as I could, could to kind of get a sense and a feel for what Loretto was like to kind of, you know, to build on my on my article. But, yeah, I think St. Francis, you know, it's interesting. So he had, Goodman has, you know, the recruiting base ranked as a 10 here, which I don't necessarily agree with because uh, Crimmel's obviously dispelled that notion, got, bringing guys in like Braxton, Blackman. I mean, there's plenty of talent across the country. And you just, you just need to be able to find, you know, you just need to be able to find where the under-recruited guys are. And he's obviously done a tremendous job doing that. And then once you bring him into Loretto, yeah, it's isolated. There's really not much going on there. But if you, if you bring into that family, family atmosphere, now these kids like actually enjoy it and they want to stay for three, four years. Um, so yeah, St. Francis, I feel like, you know, the history and tradition should be a little bit higher too. They have a great history. You know, they've, they've been around for many, many years 
they, they went to the NCAA tournament in 1991. That was a great team. Uh, they, they, and they have some media exposure too with all two at times there. So I think I, I would probably put them a little bit higher. Um, Sacred Heart, I could see why they're, they're ranked pretty low just because they don't have the history. They're kind of, you know, they're a recent uh, Division II um, tr- uh, transfer. Um, and, the, you know, their budget. Yeah, but think about, think, think, you think about your campus from 2001 to now. I mean, Sacred Heart is, yeah. has exploded. Yeah. I mean, exploded, you know. So I, I think that helps a lot too. I mean, that's a real campus with real facilities now. And, like, it's, it's tripled in growth, quadrupled, whatever you want to say. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's a great campus. And Bobby V recently has had a lot to do with that. You know, they, they built that new uh, athletic center near the football field and um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really nice campus. My only beef with sacred heart with, with the, with the admins, not with the coaches or anything like that is, you know, they're building a new hockey stadium, but they can't build a new basketball arena. And, you know, as you know, the pit center can be a little cavernous, you know, you, you could hear like the air handlers going in the, in the corner cause it's a field house, you know, you're trying to fit a basketball court into a field house if they could build like some kind of, I'm not saying build it as good as Stony Brook did for their, uh, you know, arena, but, or Quinnipiac, but if you could build them something like that, now yeah. that's going to make it a much more desirable job because playing in the pit center is a little, um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to badmouth the, the pit center too much, but I, I would love to see a new arena in Sacred Heart's future. Yeah. And it's interesting too. Yeah. You say, and it's, you look at that and you also look at, and you're comparing St. Francis and St. Francis, Brooklyn. And I don't know if you can get more of an opposite situation there where thinking the article even mentions basically the entire campus is in one building and that gym, I mean, everyone's been there bleachers on one side. It's smaller than probably my high school gym. Paul, we had your, your uh, three on three tournaments there literally every year. It's, it's a unique situation. I feel like yeah, most have no idea. <laughs> And so it, I yeah. personally, yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking at the situation and a sacred heart. I think, yeah, a campus that is growing and you can put more of an emphasis on, on basketball and that type of facility. Um, it, it's only going to, to help the program grow even more. Yeah. With St. Francis, Brooklyn, Glenn Brake is like the perfect coach for that, for that program, just because he knows how to recruit city kids, especially yeah. Brooklyn kids. Yeah. And so to, yeah. The allure to, to bring them back into the city and to, to play for St. Francis Brooklyn is really appealing to a lot of these kids. He's also very good at recruiting New Jersey as well. He's gotten Rob Higgins and Chauncey Hawkins out of there. And those are the two of the, the Terriers leading guards. Um, but yeah, they're, they're kind of under-resourced as, as a school, but you know, he's done a wonderful job of like, uh, once again, finding the under-recruited talent and being yeah. able to kind of um, kind of build that into something. And then, you know, they have that tiny gym in, at, at the Pope, but when you, when you fill that up and you get a thousand fans in there, it's really loud. It's, it's, it's a, it's a yeah. really a great atmosphere um, to, to watch basketball when it's, when it's kind of, uh, you know, I think back to the 2015 NEC uh, tournament final with Robert Morris. I mean, that atmosphere was just amazing. One of the best atmospheres I've seen in the NEC before. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I don't want to say best and worst, but I, I am always shocked when FDU wins because I, that is my least favorite gym that I've ever been in. I, you know, I forget Sacred Hearts. I think Sacred Hearts gym is way better than FDU's. I, I can't stand that gym, uh, but I won't say best and worst, just least favorite. Uh, yeah, Roth, uh, Rothman's, Rothman's kind of fitted into a field house too, right? So it's, it's a little, uh, it's tougher. It's tougher to have a great atmosphere when you're, when your arena's in a, in a field house, but you know, for Greg Carenda to win there and, and to win as much as he's done, I mean, that's a, that's a credit to him. He's done a fantastic job. 100%. Yeah. I just, I just can picture, like, on the recruiting visits, you kind of walk in and 
I don't know what you say, you know, like, Hey, this is it. <laughs> you know, you, you better love basketball. And that's basically it. That, I don't know what to say. That's better in your high school gym. So maybe that's the allure. I don't know. Yeah, that's it. Um, okay. Really quick before we get out of here, where can everybody find you, follow you, social, all that good stuff. Um, just Twitter, pretty much pioneer underscore pride. Um, I'm always on there trying to, you know, throw out some NEC tidbits and kind of promote the stuff that I'm doing for the, for the league right now. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much the focus right there. It's, it's all on Twitter. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you so much. And, uh, we'll, we'll have you on here in the, in the future when either LIU or, or Brian is winning it, man, but appreciate you coming on. We'll talk to you soon. Or Sacred Heart. You know, they're in third yeah, place. Heart. <laughs> in third place. Yeah, love, hey, I love Coach Latina, man. He's great. I love him. So we wish him the best of luck. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Paul and Ian. I appreciate it. Lately, I've been feeling like this is what I've been working towards. If you ain't trying to be the boss and tell me what you're working for. Certain doors are closed, but now they opening up. Celebrating with some shots, maybe poke on a cup. Pull, slush, rustles up next, and I got this. Crazy like Britney and the love so toxic. Got a wall up, I'm trying to infiltrate a conscious. Taking 12 shots like where the cops is. Come on.